Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Lisa Bramowitz and Tom Keen looking at FlightAware. It's a great service, flightaware.com. Uh, the Toronto Cathay Pacific is in path to land at Hong Kong, which indicates some of the international arrivals that we're still seeing at the Hong Kong airport. Our Yvonne man leading all of our Asia coverage is at the Hong Kong airport, putting in prodigious days for us. Yvonne, to begin with, what is the distinction of this Tuesday and your Tuesday 7 p.m. versus 24 hours ago? Well, Todd, it seems like airport officials are still trying to get some planes out. That's the difference here. They're not completely canceling remaining flights. We did hear some confusing or conflicting messages uh, from the ground here, on the ground here in the last hour or so. But you hear that? That's the loudspeaker. They've been playing that out very frequently and, and lot, much louder in, tempo, uh, in, in uh, volume, I should say. And what they're saying now is that all check-in service for departure flights have been suspended as of 4.30 p.m. this afternoon local time, so about two and a half hours ago. So yeah. basically anyone that checked in before that are still able to take off. Anyone else, though, they're telling people to leave the terminal right now and contact your respective airlines yeah. And Lisa, just to give you an example, Hong Kong to Boston, okay. Cathay Pacific 812 just took off. Oh, so, so that's on its way. So it's on its way. Yvonne, yeah. I, I want to talk a little bit about a tweet from the editor in chief of China's state run Global Times, who's been thought of as sort of a harbinger of the mainland's point of view and, and sort of actions. And he tweeted out that if the situation in Hong Kong doesn't improve, he thinks China will intervene. Is that sort of the growing feeling here that Beijing is preparing to get involved? Well, that's always a tough question to, to say, but what we have heard is, is the rhetoric has ramped up, right? They've been talking about how you know, they're calling it signs of terrorism that they're seeing in Hong Kong, that they're going to, to clamp down on this with an iron fist if this escalates further. But at this point, we heard from Carrie Lam earlier this morning in a press conference, and she didn't offer any kind of developments there. So she continued to to say that the Beijing supports her, Beijing supports the Hong Kong police and how they've responded to these protests and the violent clashes that we've seen, which probably irks uh, the protesters here more. They're already planning another march on Sunday. And the international community has also chimed in as well. We, we talked about Nancy Pelosi, the U.S. House Speaker, urging the Terry Land to meet with protesters, try to meet in the middle with some of their demands. And that's what irks Beijing the most here when the international community mm-hmm. chimes in. Yvonne, thank you so much. Yvonne, man, the Hong Kong uh, airport. Uh, now, there are some departures. Uh, and, excuse me, there are some arrivals, and it seems very select uh, departures as well. Gideon Rose listening to all this. He has rebuilt Foreign Affairs uh, magazine into a monthly must-read, but the September issue is truly extraordinary. And you go back to uh, the lodestone of modern Chinese study, which is a journalist, Richard McGregor, I remember when he first came out with his books on China, we all said, damn, I've got to read this because it was so immediate. What does Richard McGregor say that we need to know about the leadership of China? That, that's a thank you, Tom. And the, what he says is that the, 
driving force behind the mature adult Xi Jinping in power in China is the restoration of party rule, the uh, acting out of his filial piety toward his communist father, and essentially restoring the authority and dominance of the Chinese Communist Party within China and, and more broadly beyond it. So I do not think that Xi Jinping can ultimately allow these protests to emerge towards a, an independence movement in Hong Kong. And if he decides that things are going in that direction, there will be a crackdown. The question is only whether it will be in real time or uh, a pullback and then a crackdown after the fact. But at the end of the day, Hong Kong does not separate itself from China. So the rhetoric out of Beijing has been one of liberalization of their economy, of opening up to foreign investors and foreign businesses. But in many ways, the country has become more protectionist. So which is it? Is the country becoming more open to outsiders or more closed? Well, it's a, the, the answer is both simultaneously in different directions and different dimensions. You have this totally extraordinary understand. growing co- economy that is engaged with the world, but at the same time, there are policy measures on different sides and different types of reoriented. So the short answer is these all these trends are going simultaneously. If the world economic trends of everybody trying to beggar their neighbor and protect their own economy as things go down accelerates, then we get the classic spiral downward. But if the prospect of a hanging scares everybody enough to basically get them to a deal, then things can keep going forward. 30 seconds. Do you think that in two years' time there are going to be more foreign businesses in China than there are today? I would actually think there'll be fewer because I think, unfortunately, Mm -hmm. we're heading towards some kind of slow decoupling. uh, And until there's some really stable deal in which people can understand how they can go forward, I think we're going to see more of a a, a tension and disarray. Gideon, I hate you. Thank you for ruining my last two weeks of August because now I've got to read your magazine cover to cover. Gideon Rose, Foreign Affairs Magazine, Autocracy Now. Uh, really, just really extraordinary. Tom, why don't you say that you hate me more often? No, because it's so you, flattering. He's, he's, he's right. He's got these. Uh, I mean, you got quickly here. Robert Blackwell on India is just superb. Yeah, and it, actually, I mean, so India is a great underlooked uh, and overlooked part of the picture. And the argument here from uh, uh, <clears throat> Blackwell and, and Ashley Tellis uh, is that mm-hmm. basically we can and should make more of a resource of the Indian Alliance. Uh, there's some also great pieces by Jacob Weisberg on the future of the media and lots of different great stuff. Yeah, but, but I mean, it's just great article to article. And of course, uh, it's like thick. As I said, it's thick like well, every school's in there advertising. I will just, <laughs> every school's in there. That's sort of the, the equivalent of Vogue's uh, fashion. It advertisers. I will say, uh, if you want to get your pessimistic confirmation, how a global trading system dies is the uh, top head. So there you go. Lisa Abramowitz and Tom Keene, thrilled uh, you're with us. Lisa, two-cent spread just 12 minutes ago going down to a new, uh, new flattening or inversion right now, 4.88 on that. One of the indications here of a giant bond call. There have been a couple, HSBC, Steve Major with a, a great call. But then there's a collegial set at Morgan Stanley, which has really rung true over the last number of months. And we're so lucky to have Brian Weinstein, who's head of global fixed income at Morgan Stanley Investment Management. Yes, so lucky. Uh, Joining us here in studio uh, to talk about what we're seeing in bond markets. Brian, I think that the key question, just to go from a 30,000 foot uh, view here is, are bond markets screaming, we are heading toward a recession? 
bond markets are screaming there's no growth. Um, you can pick and choose if you believe yield curves are 100% telling you that there's going to be a recession, but that is the direction of travel. How low are we going to go here, especially with a 30-year yield close to its all-time low? I mean, it feels like we're going to take a pause at some point, but it's obvious that people are underderated, right? At three and a quarter on the 10-year note, nobody wanted them. Underderated? Is that, that a word? Yeah. No, it's a concept. You've got to more, only Morgan Stanley people can say that. <laughs> underderated? I tell my children. James Gorman is underderated. I tell my children, excuse me, that is completely underderated. That is. Yeah, it's... Well, give us a nuance on the caution. Mike Wilson, equities, caution. Ellen Zentner, GDP, caution. Fed policy, Fed rate cuts, et cetera. What's the new caution you have in a bond market priced to Austrian 100-year perfection? It's really interesting to look at interest rates where they are, and that's been the big mover, right? Three and a quarter to 160 on the 10-year note. Credit so now what? What's much. the now what? Cut so to the, the I, chase. I think the now what is, I think risk assets probably have to come off a little bit more. Equities are still very close to the highs. U.S. credit spreads haven't really moved. Um, you know, we've taken risk down because So if you move from sense. credit to full faith in credit is yeah. a 60,000-foot really view? Yeah, that's right. Add more duration. I didn't really want to ask that question. I just did to impress Lisa. I'm, I'm impressed, Tom. That was great. Uh, one question that I have, it seems like in markets, there is the expectation the Federal Reserve will cut rates uh, four times by the end of next year, and then it won't work. And, you know, I have to wonder, does that send a warning signal? Well, it's interesting you say it won't work. The inflation expectations have fallen, but they're still fairly positive. It's growth, right? There's no sign that they're going to create growth. And I think part of that is it's not just up to them, right? There's global forces at work that are keeping growth low. The Fed easing may keep us alive, but it's not. it can't spur the global economy. Just want to interrupt. I'm watching a flight plans out of Hong Kong for our New York audience. I just want to say Hong Kong to JFK just took off flight 846 Cathay. So we just are seeing off. some movement there. Yeah, well, it's a little bit. I don't want to oversell it, but could that Critical JFK flight uh, took off, I believe, arrived at 11 o'clock. You know, I have to wonder, Brian, as we look at yields going lower and the failure of central bank stimulus to really move anything, you'd say that there's going to be a sell-off in risk assets. There has to be. How deep will it be? Because people are saying, well, if it's not like a 2008 sell-off, it's a buying opportunity. Yeah, I would never say it has to be. These markets can, can stay pretty tight, as we've proven. What we've done is we've taken down risk in, in the hopes that we'll buy something cheaper, but we're not under-risked. The problem is people need yield. Right? As, when you see negative rates in Europe, when you see sub-1% rates in Australia, uh, the, the, the savior of risk assets continues to be that people need to buy non-negative yields. How long ago did you start taking down risk? We started taking down risk in April, May. I mean, remember where we came from. December was a really bad month. Things got really wide into December, January. We added risk and, and took it down in, in we call it April, May. What would it take for you to get back in? probably another couple of days, like the last couple. It, listen, you can't wait for all the uncertainty to go away. It's not going to happen. Uh, I think knowing what the Fed is going to do, they seem like they are not ahead of the curve. That is always a yeah. dangerous place for risk assets. So I think we need the Fed uh, to be a little more clear that they see what the market is asking for and that they agree as a committee. You have a storied career at BlackRock and at Morgan Stanley, and it's wrapped around research. Let's take Dan Fuss, the giant at Loomis Sales who wanted to buy discount paper, take it up off of a credit redo, an improving credit redo. All that stuff is thrown out the window here, isn't it? 
it is. I mean, uncertainty will make uh, the markets do things that don't make sense, and that's good for people. Yeah, but negative interest rates aren't in Fabozzi. They're right. not something Dan Fuss was weaned on. Negative interest rates are problematic. They're not in the textbook. As so how do we clear the fixed income market of these historical oddities. Don't tell me there's a permanence to negative interest rates. It's hard to imagine there's a permanence to negative interest rates, but they can stick around for a very long time. Listen, the theory after 08 as rates went down was that it would be massively inflationary, right? Central banks buying the concept of negative Some interest people rates. thought that, Many, others didn't. Yeah, you know, And yeah. it hasn't happened. I think, there are, I think there's a broader question, uh, which will probably bore the audience, which is... We got you know, four minutes, 33 <laughs> seconds to bore him, are, so are, are, there, are there other things that are at play besides besides central bank rates and demographics, right, causing uh, causing interest rates to go down? Okay. And uh, there's a lot of forces that... Is that Sir John Templeton rates. said there will be a shortage of bonds. Is there a shortage of bonds? Uh, yes, it feels like there's a shortage of bonds. I think when you see the, the bond market do what it did yesterday, we have a, a 15 basis exactly. point rally in the well back said. end. well said. Yeah, that, that there's a shortage of bonds. I mean, Lisa, bonds. I think that's really important. That observation yesterday was different. Yeah. Yesterday was extraordinary. Well, you made a really good point this morning, Tom. What I do? <laughs> besides showing up. <laughs> <laughs> no, you said it. You know, all of a sudden, everyone's a long-term investor, and it and it raises a question: yeah. Who's trading right now? And Brian, that's a question a lot of people are wondering because when I talk with real money investors, they're sitting on their hands. I mean, our trading volumes uh, you know, go down a lot on uh, investment management side when uh, when there's this much uncertainty. So I think you have people that are forced to trade, and those are often levered players, right? People who have borrowed money to invest in Argentina or something like that will have to, to move. And then uh, algorithms, right? The computers, the models will, will move right. risk around as there's opportunity. How did you know? I was in the triple leverage all cash fund, <laughs> but vet bill said throw 10% into the triple leverage Buenos Aires fund. We only do Worked triple leverage. Worked out great. Yeah, here at Bloomberg Surveillance, we only do triple <clears throat> leverage. Farrow does four-pull leverage. Four-pull yeah. leverage. No, but this is an important point. I'm wondering if it's algorithms. Everybody always points to them and sort of it has become a cliche. But does this mean that markets are much less efficient? I think in, in certain idiosyncratic cases, yes, an opportunity comes from that. Where is their volume in, in treasuries, right? You could see that there was a clear need for many places for treasuries. Uh, but I think in other markets, volumes fall and price discovery is more difficult and fixed income is particularly notorious uh, for getting uh, less efficient when things get very uncertain. Brian, don't be a stranger. This has been great. Brian Weinstein this with Morgan Stanley on fixed income. William Sells is with HSBC as the enviable title Chief Market Strategist, and he joins us now for an important conversation. Willem, I, I look at what we're hearing, which is I'm a long-term investor. I have to stand pat through all the emotion and the cacophony that we see. How do you stand pat on this Tuesday morning? Well, you know, it's, it's easier said than done um, because clearly, indeed, from a longer term perspective, it, it, it pays to, to remain invested. But you still that doesn't mean that you don't adapt your portfolio a little bit, um, you know, from time to time. And so, for example, at this point in time, we are holding a little bit more cash than usual. We are holding less equities than usual. And especially we are holding more defensive um, equities. Um, and, you know, we're basically not yet buying the dip here because we do think that, you know, indeed, you were talking about the yield curve inversion, potentially, there are these worries about global growth um, that are accelerating. Um, and therefore, I think there might be a little bit further of a shakeout before we would before we would step in. 
Well, um, we're talking recession, we're talking gloom and doom, and yet everyone's talking about that and everyone is saying that they're de-risking and going into higher quality stocks, holding more cash. Isn't that a positive, technically? Well, so, so so depends when you do it. And the difficulty with this with this um, uh, with the last few months that is that you know there is some economics and then there is some politics. And politics always make it much more difficult to actually make that decision. Um, so therefore, we did it actually in three steps. We started in May, then we did you know another bit in June, and then you know our final bit here, hopefully the final bit here in in August. Now, if indeed, as you're saying, people have been de-risking after a while you find you should find the bottom also actually people were not that heavily invested because actually in the beginning of the year we published a piece which said this is an unloved rally the beginning of the year remember that rally if you still remember it people were not participating in it people stood on the sidelines so a good thing that people are not overly invested therefore potentially need to sell less what is the market bet right now obviously in bonds Everybody's predicting, you know, they're piled on price up, yield down. What is the bet now in the equity market that concerns you, the overbet, if you will? Um, I think the, um, you know, there is, a, there is a big bet, I think, on uh, the U.S. relative to Europe. Uh, we have it on as well, so I won't be the contrarian here on this call. I do think that, um, you know, the U.S. economy is still more resilient um, uh, than Europe. Um, clearly, the risk here is that if the U.S. economy gives, then, you mm-hmm. know, that's the big anchor that gives as well. Now, the, 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 we do think that that the anchor will remain in place. Why? Because the, the weakness in the global economy is mostly around manufacturing, and that affects the, you know, the trading-oriented countries around the world. That's why, for example, you had the weak data point in Germany as well earlier right. this morning. Right. Um, but the U.S. is a big domestic economy. The consumer is still fine, you know, especially if your housing market that you were talking about is fine as well. That consumer will remain right. resilient. Um, but clearly, if the manufacturing weakens too much, you're going to get layoffs, and then your consumer could weaken. So it is something yeah. to watch. Lisa, I'm watching two's ten breakdown again, 4.61 as well, a set of lower highs on the two's ten spread trading since quarter seven this morning. Yeah, definitely uh, important to watch. Well, I'm, I'm watching the Emerging Market Currency Index, the MSCI index here at the lowest since December of last year. And I'm just wondering, as we talk about Argentina, with the expectations of default, they're picking up dramatically. How concerned are you about emerging markets here? So some of the weakness in the emerging market effects is, is, is also simply a reflection of U.S. dollar strength. So people are flocking into the U.S. dollar on, on the basis of the global economy weakening, on the basis of a risk off trade, on the basis of the U.S. Um, uh, providing a, a yield pickup, certainly relative to the yen and to the euro. So there's, there's that one element. Now, obviously, there is also some weakening in the emerging markets, which is related, number one, to the, the, the questions around, are we going to have weakness in China? Is China going to be able to prop up its economy um, enough? Um, So that's the one factor. And then you have country by country, you have those more idiosyncratic stories, like, for example, Argentina. I wouldn't, Argentina is always a bit the odd one out. Usually it doesn't lead to that much contagion, but obviously if you already have a weaker picture, there is a possibility. Yeah, but I saw Real move out to, you know, 3.99. I think that's close enough to 4. And even Turkish Lear has picked it up. It's been quiescent recently as well. What contagion did you and HSBC observe yesterday? 
So, I mean, on the contagion, I think what we need to do is, and, 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 it's, and it's very important in the emerging markets to, you know, focus on those countries that have, you know, um, uh, improving um, uh, macro balances, that have um, abilities to cut interest rates because, um, you know, the U.S. Uh, dovish policy by the Fed actually gives a lot of countries to, uh, the ability to cut interest rates, but obviously they cannot do that if their inflation is too high. So one needs to be selected, and one, when one looks at that, um, you know, it's clear that the likes of Brazil, China, Indonesia, even in <clears> India right. and Russia are better placed than Argentina, Ukraine, Turkey, etc. Uh, William Sells, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it with HSBC. We have a wonderful guest for you now with decades of experience in looking at continental Europe and some of the dynamics of the markets. Marie Owens Thompson is with Credit Agricole Indosuez and Indo-Suez Wealth Management. Uh, Dr. Owen Thompson, thank you so much for joining us today. How do you link this market turmoil into the structure of EU banking? I don't want you to speak about individual EU banks. I know that's inappropriate, but I'm looking at my screen and I'm seeing a cross-asset market struggle that is affecting the share price of European banking. How do you adapt to that? Well, I think uh, in general, it must be said, though, that uh, the European banks have made, uh, you know, great strides in shoring up their balance sheet uh, ever since 2008, of course. And we have a new regulation in Europe also around banks, and the ECB is now, uh, you know, in charge of uh, regulating the major banks in Europe, and we're making uh, progress also towards a, a more profound banking union. So I think that there's a little bit of just... Uh, under love, Europe tends to be a bit under love, and uh, and I believe that that can be said also for its uh, banking sector. Marie, what's the lower bound for German yields right now? Uh, sorry, could you repeat that? I what's what's the lower bound? How low can German yields go? I'm looking at two-year yields now currently in Germany at negative 0.87%. I'm just wondering how negative things could potentially go as uh, traders contemplate another ECB rate cut. Right. So it's clear from the various statements that Mario Draghi has uh, made uh, repeatedly that uh, the ECB is very happy with the policies that they have conducted uh, so far in the wake of the 2008 crisis. So basically, uh, what we're hearing them saying is that what we used to consider to be unconventional monetary policies at one point in time have now become uh, totally conventional. And Mario Draghi has said that he's very happy with negative interest rates. So uh, indeed, I think that these um, negative interest rates are likely to prevail for, for quite some time. And uh, and again, the central bank is satisfied with the effect that that has had uh, yeah. so far. Now, of course, things could be uh, radically better, but for that to happen, we really need the government, and we need fiscal policy. This I think is... that we have an overfocus on central banks in this context, and too high expectations that central banks can somehow uh, sort everything out with the magic wand of either QE or, or negative interest rates, yeah. whereas the, the real problem is 
on the fiscal side, I would dare to purport. Yeah, a lot of people are saying that this morning. Firmly, the conversation bond markets are signaling that they want fiscal stimulus. I am wondering, do you think that negative interest rates are deflationary in their own right? Well, I mean, clearly it's not good for savers and it's not good for pension funds and insurance companies and everybody with sort of the necessity of planning for uh, covering financial liabilities in the future. But at the same time, uh, I, I would argue that when uh, when you are in this kind of a situation, it's better to have negative interest rates than to do nothing. But, you know, the, what's forcing these negative interest rates is, is the lack of an appropriate fiscal policy or, you know, structural reform in general. The lack of action in other areas mm-hmm. is what's forcing central banks to take these extreme actions. And, uh, and I think that this is where well. we have perhaps too much hope on their success, because without supporting policies from the other policymakers, it's, uh, it's having this rather muted response right. that we're seeing instead of creating yeah. the higher growth rates that we would all like to have. Marie Owens Thompson, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. With Indosuez uh, Wealth Management, a European view there. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.